We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Have you ever noticed that? The, the good news is not what drives our attention. It's not what grabs our attention. It's not what makes most of the headlines that we see when we watch the news or when, when we read it on our devices. I've, I've had numerous people point this out to me before, and, and I've even had some uh, loved ones that have said to me, you know, I, I just don't watch the news anymore because it's so depressing. It's so discouraging. And, and, and the reason for that is every, every time you turn the TV on, it seems like there's another headline about the latest tragedy or what has gone wrong in the world. And, and, and so the good news don't make the headlines. And, and it's kind of that way when we think about the church and our topic for today, particularly with church discipline. When, when we hear those kinds of things, when we think about what the church is, what it's been, and when we think about the idea of church discipline, most of the time, what we've experienced is not the good news, not the good stories. Most of the time, what you and I have experienced around these topics is the bad news, is, is the bad stories, when things have gone wrong, when things haven't been done well or as they should have been, when things have been done in a harmful way rather than a helpful way. And so when we come to a question like we have today, like the question, what is church discipline, we kind of have this visceral reaction to it because what we've seen and what we've experienced has been hard to say the least and harmful to say the most. You see, when we think about church discipline, we think about uh, the times when we saw it practiced and then the, the person that was the subject of it never darkens the doors of another church again because of the way it was done and their newfound hatred for the church as a whole. Or maybe we think about reality television shows about the Amish and how in in their kind of version of church discipline there's this shunning idea where loved ones and family members won't even speak to you or eat with you or or do certain things and and there's this shunning and, and shame idea. And we think, I don't want any part of that. Or maybe we think about when we've seen so-called Christians confronting people about sin and evil in a way that is definitely harmful and not helpful in public settings, like, like walking down the street with a microphone and yelling about how God hates gay people and God hates sinners and God hates this, that, and this. Or, or showing up on a college campus and getting in somebody's face and telling them that they're going to hell and that you're a sinner and that you're, you're stuck in evil. You see, sometimes the way that Christians and the way that the church has confronted sin and evil has not been in the way that Scripture instructs us to And so when we think of things like church discipline, most of the time we don't have a beautiful picture of God's redemptive love in our minds. 
Instead, we have memories of hurt and harm in churches. We have memories of times when we saw so-called believers acting in profoundly wicked ways. This idea of speaking truth in love, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we're not sure that we've ever seen it done. And so when we come to a question like, what is church discipline, and, and why would we talk about this as a part of our Back to the Basics series, we kind of wonder, is this really something we should be about? Is this really something that is basic to understanding the church and what it's to do? And so my hope for this morning is that as we look at this question, this question that sometimes brings up things in our minds that that create that kind of visceral reaction where we just kind of want to step back and not have any part of it. My hope is that Jesus would use his words on this subject to shape and mold us, to help us understand how church discipline can actually be this beautiful and redemptive thing where the community of faith calls one another to follow after Jesus Christ by his grace and his strength. And, and helps one another, holding one another accountable to follow after him in all of life. I hope we can see some of the ways in which Jesus uses his church to help his people. And so that's where we're going today. That's, that's my hope for today, as we look at some of what Jesus and Paul have to say on this subject. I, my prayer is that Jesus would use this time to help us see some of the good news regarding this topic. That we would no longer just think about the bad stories we've heard or seen and witnessed. And so that's where we're going. That's what my hope is today, is that we can answer this question. What is church discipline? And, and why is it a basic thing for the church to understand? If we're to be a local church that is about Christ's mission in our community and to the ends of the earth, how does this play into that as a part of it? And why is it important and helpful? So if you want to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, that's where we're going to begin our time together. And then you can put a bookmark in Matthew chapter 18, also in the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if we can get to it with timing. So uh, Galatians chapter 6, though, is where we're going to begin together. As we look at four things today regarding church discipline, I want us to look at our responsibility to do church discipline, our, our posture of humility as we approach church discipline, our process for church discipline that Jesus has laid out as a redemptive context for caring for God's people, and our hope for restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. So that's where we're going. Let's start with our responsibility, Galatians chapter 6. Here is what Paul says about our responsibility as believers in Christ. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. 
Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know what, you know what Paul's talking about when he says household of faith there? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the family of God. He's talking about our responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who have trusted in him for redemption, for salvation, for forgiveness, for making us new. He's saying, do good to one another, and especially to one another in the church. The way that Christ's redemption of us ought to shape our lives is transformative. It ought to change the way that we relate to one another, especially the way that we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys hear me talk about this all the time, where what I'm noticing online on social media is the way that Christians interact with one another is really problematic. Because it's far from what we read in Scripture, especially in passages like Galatians 6. Instead of correcting one another with a spirit of gentleness, we are violent with our words towards one another, and we have fights in front of the whole world. We don't act like brothers and sisters who love one another. We don't act like there's a God who has reconciled us to himself and to each other in Christ. Paul's saying there is a way that the household of faith ought to act towards one another. There's a way that Christians ought to relate to one another. And part of this is as brothers and sisters, as family members, that's what the church, that's what we talked about, right? Is a local church is a family. We are those who have been adopted by God the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ, and made a part of God's family, this community of faith that he is building as a spiritual temple where his presence dwells among his people. And so we're made as, we're remade as family. And, and this ought to shape how we interact with one another. This is what it means to be the church. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, so if, if we're family members, if God has reconciled us to himself in Christ and made us family, the way that we care for family is with loving correction. I'll never forget this time where I saw a dad when, when his little boy was, was about to run into the street, this dad scooped him up and promptly spanked him. And, and, and the reason he did that is because he wanted his little boy to know, because of his love for him, that he was headed for danger, that he was headed for something that was going to destroy his life. And so he picks him up, and, and he spanks him, and the little boy starts to cry. And, and then what, what happened next was beautiful. Because right after this father disciplined his son to keep him from what would destroy him, he embraces him. He hugs him. He holds him close, and he speaks 
words of love and affirmation to him and, and affirms his care for him. So in, in the midst of this one moment, we saw discipline and correction with gentle love. That's what it looks like when family corrects one another. That's what it should look like, at least. You can say, well, my family reunions do not look like that, Pastor. And I would say, you know, sometimes mine don't either. And, you know, so God help us. But what, what correction inside a family ought to look like is that it ought to be done in love. It ought to be done with a spirit of gentleness. It ought to be about keeping one another from danger and keeping one another close to Christ. It says, brothers, if any is caught in this transgression, restore him with a spirit of gentleness. If you think about your own family, hopefully your own family members, if you see someone in your family caught in the grips of addiction, hopefully, hopefully you don't just let them keep going. Hopefully you confront them in love. Hopefully you say, this is going to destroy you. You can't keep doing this. Maybe you've got a time in your family where, where you kind of got everybody together and you, you had that kind of intervention moment where you saw a loved one heading for destruction and, and you gathered everybody together and, and you, you said, okay, here, here are the things that we, here are the reasons why we love you so much and, and here are the things that we're concerned about and, and we want to present these things to you because we think you're, you're headed for destruction and we want to see you thrive. That's the approach we ought to take to church discipline Christians as, as we ought to see one another as, as family and approach one another with loving correction so, so that when any, when any is caught in any transgression what, what Paul means there is when, when somebody's caught in sin when they're stuck when, when they don't seem to be able to find their own way out of it the, the, the role that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is to come alongside and lovingly expose some of their blind spots and help them take steps towards Jesus and away from the sin that has so easily ensnared them. If anyone's caught in any kind of transgression, they're, they're stuck in any kind of sin. We who are spiritual, you see what Paul says there? Uh, whenever we read that, you who are spiritual, we, we tend to think of kind of our heroes of the faith, you know, our mentors in, in the faith, you know, may, maybe that old lady who knows all the Bible verses and you're a little intimidated by that because, you know, you, you've read a little bit of the Bible, but, you know, whenever you're with her, you just kind of feel inadequate because of how much she knows, that's the people we kind of tend to think about when we read, you who are spiritual. But what Paul means is any believer in Christ. What, what you, are, you who are spiritual means in the context of Galatians is those who are seeking to follow after Jesus Christ, living by the strength and power of his spirit and not their own. So in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about those who live by the Spirit and those who live by the flesh. And then he gets into Galatians 6 and talks about how we are to relate with one another. And he says, you who are spiritual, meaning you who have received the Holy Spirit of God. And that is every believer in Christ who has placed their faith in him. And so when Paul says, you who are spiritual be about this, you who are spiritual do this. He doesn't mean the Christian who's been a Christian for 50 years. He means the Christian who's been a Christian for 50 years and the Christian who's been a Christian for five seconds. 
He means you who are filled with God's spirit, seeking to follow after Jesus Christ. If you're a part of God's family, this is your responsibility. And he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, Christians don't confront with violence, but with gentleness. There's kind of this idea in our culture, and you've heard me talk about this to you before, that, that, that strength and power and dominance are almost the way to go. Especially when we think about manhood. You know, there's been this subtle message throughout the decades that that's kind of what it looks like to be a leader, to be a man, you know, and these kinds of things. And those are harmful ideas because the vision of humanity and the vision of manhood and the vision of womanhood and the vision of what God has created us to be and do in Scripture is completely in contrast with that. Paul says, confront one another with a spirit of gentleness, which means you're not, when you confront someone, it's out of love and you're not brutal getting up in their face and and trying to threaten them into obedience. I had a I had a friend who I respect dearly and, and would go to for counsel on so many things who once recommended to me that the way to confront an abusive man is to get in his face and make threats. There's multiple reasons why that's not helpful. And, and, and the first one is because it, it's not biblical. See, Christians are... Con- are called to confront one another in love and with a spirit of gentleness. This doesn't mean that we don't confront. It doesn't mean that when we see evil being done, when we see wrong being committed, when we see sin happening, it doesn't mean that we don't confront it. Instead, it shapes the way that we confront it. Because, for example, when, when you get up in an abusive man's face and you start yelling back at him and you start making threats to him about what you're going to do if he harms his wife or kids anymore, what that communicates to him is that that kind of behavior is normal, is that that kind of behavior is acceptable, is that he's been doing the same things with his own family that you're doing with him right now. And that's hugely problematic because it just reinforces his belief system. But instead, we come to a context like that and we say, hey, this can't happen anymore. You can't do this. You're destroying your family. You're you're brutally breaking the, the beautiful souls that God has entrusted to your care. And this can't happen anymore. This has to change. And so you come and you confront with a gentle spirit, with the spirit of Christ. Because if if you remember Galatians 5, one of the fruits of the spirit, one of the fruit singular of the spirit is gentleness, kindness, patience, love. You see, these things ought to characterize the way that we confront one another. Even when we see serious wrongdoing happening, it's not that we step back and don't confront. Paul's calling us to enter in. He's saying, this is your responsibility, and this is how you do it. 
on the other side of things, you, you, you know what it communicates whenever we, we say, you know what, church discipline and, and correction and things like this, those are all really kind of negative things that I don't want to be a part of, and, and so I'm just going to kind of step back. Whenever we shirk our responsibility in this area, you know what it communicates? It communicates to those who have been abused, to those who have been uh, affected by sin and evil. It communicates that we don't actually love and care for them. And even worse, it communicates to that person or that individual who's been affected by evil, sin, wrongdoing, abuse, whatever it might be. It communicates to that wife or that child or that church member. It communicates to them that the Jesus that we represent doesn't care either. And so, friends, this responsibility is serious, and it's part of who we're to be as the family of God, as the church of Christ. This is, what it mean, this is part of what it means to, as, as Paul says here, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He's talking about love for God and love for one another there. And he's saying the way that you bear one another's burdens, the way you obey the law of Christ and fulfill it, is you enter into these spaces with loving and gentle correction. When you see someone headed for destruction, you reach out and you say, don't go that way. You plead with them to be reconciled to God and reconciled to those they've offended or hurt. This is part of our responsibility. And as we do so, Paul warns us to keep watch on ourselves. He says, look, look at yourself first and make sure that you're not entering into a place where you're going to be tempted to sin in the same ways as you do so, as you care for them. And he says, continue to seek to do this good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, when we talk about things like church membership and church discipline, what we're talking about is a family. Church membership is how we know who's a part of the family. Those who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ and their desire to follow him in all of life. When they get baptized as a response to what God, God's saving work in them, the work he's already done in them, they get baptized, they get dunked under the water, symbolizing that they have died with Christ and been raised to new life with him to follow after him and walk in the newness of the life that he's provided. And they enter into the community of faith that is the church as a member of that family. And so church membership is how we know who, who the family is. In Hebrews 13, we read this about, about pastors and their churches and such, and we didn't get to talk about this last week, but here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's one of, one of the few passages in Scripture that ought to strike fear into the heart of every pastor called to lead in any church. Because what God's word just said is that one day Cameron and I are going to stand before Jesus' throne and have to give an account for how we cared for you. And, and as a part of that, what would be really helpful is, is to know whom we're accountable for, right? And, and this is why church membership is an important and helpful thing in churches. It's because it, it's a way to identify who said, yeah, I belong to Jesus. 
This is my family. And we're walking together in covenant community where we're committed to Christ, following him, and committed to one another and doing it together. Church membership is how we know who the family is, and then church discipline is actually how we care for our family members, how we care for one another, how we encourage one another in our faith, how we build one another up in love, how we speak truth in a loving way to one another when we need to be corrected and steered back onto the course. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend of mine who... His home situation was, was really, really messed up. His dad was a drug dealer and, and often gone, and, and he was often left alone. And so what, what happened is he, essentially, he joined our family. He came in, he lived with us. And, and, and he never really had a, a place to belong like that, where there were uh, where you were identified as part of the family, and then there were kind of expectations that went along with that. Like, this is how our family operates. This is how it works. This is how we run together. And so whenever he kind of came to live with us, my, my dad sat him down in our living room, and, and he said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to treat you like my own son. You're going to be a part of our family now. But that means some things. It means you enjoy all the benefits of being a son, of being a family member. It also means you have all the same expectations and responsibilities that my own son has, that, that we have as family members in this family. And so my friend was like, yeah, that sounds great, you know. And then, because he'd never had that before, he'd just kind of always done his own thing. There were, there were a couple nights in a row where where instead of obeying the curfew that my dad had given us, instead of, instead of calling first whenever he wanted to do something, he just went and did it, and then he showed up whenever he wanted to. And of course, my parents weren't cool with that because they'd invited this friend of mine to be a part of our family, and they cared for him. They loved him. And so they wanted to know where he was going to be. They wanted to know that he was going to be safe. They wanted to know he was going to have what he needed. Whenever he didn't call, he was, he was not just disobeying a, a house rule, but he was, in, in their eyes, putting himself in dangerous situations. And he was, he was shirking the responsibilities of a family member. And so my dad let him know. He said, hey, here's what it means to be a part of our family. There's, there's some rules in place. There's some expectations. And these are actually for your good. Siri wanted to join in on the sermon. <laughs> Worst times ever, I tell you. But anyways, we're a family church. That comes with all the benefits of being sons and daughters of the king. And it also comes with all the expectations of actually living that out and walking as a son or daughter of the king. And whenever that's not taking place, the most loving thing we can do with one another is to, hey, say, is to say, hey, I think you're off here. Is to say, hey, here's the way. Let's walk in it together. So this is our responsibility as a church. This is actually part of the mission, too. If you remember when we talked about the mission of the church, what did Jesus say? He said, 
go throughout the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Well, as we're going to see in just a moment, part of what Jesus taught is he taught us how to live in relationship to one another, and he taught some things about this topic, church discipline. And so part of learning to obey Jesus in all of life and in all of what he's called us to is looking at this topic and saying, what do you have to say about this, Jesus, and how does that shape my relationships in the local church? Next, let's look quickly at our posture in church discipline, which should be one of humility. Here's what Matthew chapter 7 has to say about the way that we confront and correct one another. Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For the judgment with which you, the judgment, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice the command here that Jesus makes. It's not, to, it's not do not ever judge anyone. That's not what Jesus is saying when he says judge not. He says, judge not that you not be judged. And he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't don't judge others with a standard that you don't want to be judged by. He's not saying all judgment is a bad thing. We don't believe that even in our own culture, do we? When there's wrongdoing done, we believe that courts... The, the system in place in our country should carry out justice, that there should be judgment on evil, that there should be correction, that these things should take place. Oftentimes they don't take place in the way that they need to, but we believe that they should because we know that, that evil can't be left unchecked. It's not okay for sin to just continue. It has to be dealt with. There has to be justice. There has to be correction. And and so Jesus says, listen, when you look at correcting your brother, if, if you've started there, you've started in the wrong place. If you start with the speck in their eye, you've made a huge mistake because there may be a log in yours. And you can't see clearly a little speck in someone else's eye if there's a giant log obstructing your own vision. He says, you've got to begin with looking at yourself and humbly asking, is there a way in which I have sinned against my friend, against my brother or sister in Christ? Is there a way that I have sinned against God here? And how do I repent and, and change that? Before you look at correcting the speck that you see in your brother's eye, you have to look at yourself and the sin that is in you. You have to deal with it first. Because only then, Jesus says, can you see clearly to help someone else with their own struggle, their own problem. You see, no one is outside the need for loving correction of sin. Because we're all broken, messed up people that struggle with sin on a daily basis. There's not one of us in this room or outside this room that don't need this. 
That's, that's me included. This is why I, I have four different individuals that get a weekly report of everything that I look at online. I, I send it to two staff members, I send it to my wife, and I send it to a church member who's a close friend. And the reason I do that is because I know that just like anyone else, I'm prone to having logs in my own eye. That I need people around me who can say, hey, I think you've got a speck or a log going on and we need to remove that. And so I I, I place some accountability in my life with other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who can help me see these things more clearly. This is why whenever, whenever I have a conflict or a disagreement or a frustration with someone, what I try to do by God's grace, and I hope I'll keep growing in this every day of my life, is, is I try to ask myself, is, is there a way that I've sinned against this person? Before I mention my frustration with them, is there something that I've done that I need to apologize for, that I need to change? And friends, if we start there, you know what happens? Loving correction is taken a whole lot better. If we start by looking at ourselves and saying, you know what? I'm not perfect. There, there's some things I've done wrong. I, I, I'm sorry for doing this. I shouldn't have done that. And, and, and then we say, here's what's been concerning to me, brother. Here's what's been concerning to me, sister. That conversation goes a whole lot better than you coming up to your brother or sister in Christ and saying, hey, you've got a problem. It just goes better, and Jesus knows this. Jonathan Lehman, in a a book on understanding church discipline, he said it this way. He said, if your heart is unwilling to consider the possibility that your eye has a log in it, you probably should not call attention to the specks in the eyes of others, even if you are right about any given speck. The log in your eye matters, even if you're right about the speck in your brother's. So Jesus says, this is where we've got to start. He also says, if we have this perception of ourselves that, that, that we're, we don't sin, that we don't struggle with sin, that, that this isn't true of us, the Bible calls us a liar. First John says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, talking about God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first part of understanding salvation and understanding Christianity is understanding that we've got a sin problem. That, that we do wrong against God and others and that we need forgiveness, that we need God's grace to change us and make us new. We need what Jesus did on the cross and in his life to make us righteous before God. He says, if, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Other, in other words, we don't belong to him. If we say we don't struggle with sin. There was one time where I, w- I, was, I was helping with another counselor walk walk this couple through some marriage problems that they were experiencing and, and it was, they had some real difficulties and were having a hard time and, and I remember one session we had where it, it just became clear that we had a Matthew 7 problem. We had a, we had a humility problem with the approach to the conflict. 
Because in that session, we started looking at Jeremiah 17, which teaches, along with passages like 1 John, that, that our own hearts deceive us. That our hearts are deceptive. And when we read that, when we talked about that, the, the wife looks at me and she says, not mine. My heart's not wicked or evil. My heart's not deceptive. I'm good. And it was in that moment that I knew that she could not see clearly to approach their conflict because she had a log in her eye and she couldn't see it. And that's why we need each other. Because a lot of the time we don't realize we've got a log in our eye. We need family to point that out and help us see. And so our posture as we approach church discipline is one of humility. And in Matthew 18, we we read about the actual process for going about this. So Matthew chapter 18, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, there's, there's three things I want you to see as we read through this. You'll see that there's individual conversations, there's, there's conversations with a small group of people, and then there's church-wide conversations. And so this is Jesus speaking and, and his words about this process of, of loving correction and church discipline. Here's what he has to say. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so Jesus says, the first step in this process of loving correction, of gentle restoration, of church discipline, is one-on-one. Is when you've got an issue with somebody, you go to that person and you talk to them about it. You have a conversation together. Or you say, hey, hey man, here's what I think I'm seeing in in your life right now, and, and this is why I'm concerned about it. And you talk through that together. You lovingly, gently correct and confront their sin on an individual basis. You see, it's always better to start here. It never goes well when you start by talking to other people about your problem with someone else. It's always best to start here and have a conversation with the person you actually have an issue with. And most of the time, like, like I said, we're, we're blind to those faults, and, and we need a loving friend to come to us individually, personally, and say, hey, here's what I'm seeing, to point it out. And, and, and to be honest, this is where most church discipline starts and ends, is this step right here. And if we do this well, if we gently restore one another, if we lovingly correct one another, if we encourage one another in the faith on an individual, personal, relational basis, then most of the time, this is as far as church discipline goes. 
It's, it's designed to start here with a personal conversation with someone who's a family member in Christ. Say, hey, here's what I'm seeing. And, and this, can, this can result in, in one of three things. It can result in that conversation or a series of conversations that can result in genuine repentance. They might, they might say, oh my gosh, I didn't even see it. Thank you. Thank you for helping me see what I was headed for. And they might change. They might walk away from that then and towards Christ with you. It also might result in, in greater understanding for both of you. Maybe there's something you misunderstood. Maybe you gained some greater clarity about something that was done or, or why it was done. And, and you gained some insight into the relationship you have with this person that you didn't have before. Or it, it may result in them continuing down this path of sin. It may result in them continuing to walk in this. At which point, you go to the next step. You bring another trusted brother or sister in Christ, another trusted friend, ideally someone that this person trusts as well, and you say, hey, hey, can you come talk with us about this? Here's what I'm seeing. I just want, I just want another, another person's eyes on this, another person to, to say, hey, is this what you're seeing as well? And, and talk through this with us. And then, and then it may bring greater clarity, just having someone else's perspective. Scripture teaches that there's wisdom in many counselors. And, or it may bring genuine repentance at that point. Sometimes, whenever it's just a problem between you and somebody else, and then you bring somebody else in on it, and they can say, hey, here's what I'm seeing as well, then maybe when they didn't see it with you trying to lovingly correct them, maybe they'll see it when an outside party is brought in and says, hey, this is what I'm seeing as well. Or they might say, no, I don't want to hear what you guys have to say. I'm going to continue in this. And they might continue to walk down that path. At which point Jesus says, the loving right thing for you to do is to widen audiences, to bring the whole church family in on it doesn't mean that you get up on a, in a service on a Sunday morning and you say, hey, so-and-so did this this week, and let's deal with this. It means you get those who have said, you know what, I'm a, I'm a member of this local church. I'm a member of this family. I'm committed to walking with Jesus with these people. And you say, hey, let's, let's get together and, and talk about this concerning thing that I'm seeing. And, and you confront in that way. So this would, ideally this would look like probably involving your pastors at some point. Whether it's in that, in that bringing one or two with you stage, or after you've already done that, saying, hey, Pastor Cameron, Pastor Grant, here's what's been going on. You know, we're really concerned for this person, and, and, and we need some help um, taking this to the next step of caring for them well. And, and what we would do at that point is, is you know, kind of get a lay of the land of what's been going on and, and be praying with you for that person and, and saying, God, would you move in this person's heart? Would you work in this area? Would you bring redemption, restoration, help, and healing and, and repentance and faith? And then, you know, we might even try and go with you to have another conversation. And then, and then if those things fail... 
likely there's been multiple individual conversations, multiple conversations with a smaller group, and, and the person's still not seeing why what they're doing is against the way of Christ, then, then we schedule a get-together with the church family. We say, hey, we need to call a, a covenant member meeting or a business meeting, and, and we need to say, hey, here's what's been happening Here's what's been done to, to try and care for this person well and try and confront them and, and warn them of the danger that they're headed for. And, and now we're giving this to you, church, so that you can be praying for them, so that you can have loving conversations where you attempt to gently restore and correct. And now we're going we're gonna to give it a period of time where, where we try and do this together, where we try and, and care for one another well in hopes that, that God's going to do something amazing. And again, this can result in repentance. It can result in greater understanding. Or it can result in continuing sin. At which point, Jesus says that we treat the person who is continuing to walk in this as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what Jesus means there is that, you see, Gentiles and tax collectors were those who were not a part of the Jewish, Jewish community of faith. They were not believers. And so what Jesus is saying is that someone, if someone continues to walk in sin, even though all the believers in their life, in their local church family, are saying, hey, don't do this. Don't walk in this. This is going to destroy your life. If all that's happening and they're continuing in it, and he says the most loving thing for us to do is to say, you know what, we can't affirm from what we're seeing in your life that, that you're actually a believer in Christ. We can't affirm that you have a genuine saving faith and knowledge of Jesus. And so we're going we're to treat you and love you like we would someone who does not believe the gospel who does not want to follow Jesus because what you're showing in the fruits of your actions is that the root of your heart is not in Christ. And so we're going we're gonna to treat you as, as we would any unbelieving person that, that we love and want to know Christ. We're going we're gonna to share the good news of Jesus with you. We're going to pray for your salvation, your redemption. And all the while, as, as we do these kinds of things, as we have these kinds of conversations, and as we pray these prayers, as we weep these tears together, our hope is for salvation. Our hope is for restoration. Jesus said in Matthew 18, in verse 15, right from the beginning, he says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And he says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. There's been reconciliation between you and him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, as he talks about church discipline as well, he, he talks about the goal of, of that last step where we say, you know what, you're no longer a member of this church family because we don't see the evidence of faith in your life. He says, the reason you do that is so that that person might come to a genuine saving knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. 
And so our goal, friends, in, in lovingly correcting one another, encouraging one another, and having these kinds of conversations with prayers and tears and weeping is that people might be saved and know Jesus Christ. Is that people might be reconciled to one another in the body of Christ. And that through all of this, God might get the glory as he does a beautiful work of redemption and restoration in us and through us. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful this morning that you love us well. That you care so much about us that you would expose the dark places of our hearts. That you would show us the ways in which we are headed for destruction. That you would help us to see that you are here with your grace and offering redemption to us. And so God, I I pray for my friends right now that, that don't yet know you. God, I pray that they would hear your loving voice calling out to them, saying, I want you to be a part of my family. God, I pray for those who are in the family of God, who belong to Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see the logs in our eyes, help us to care for one another as we, as we deal with the specks. God, help us to approach all of this with humility, love, kindness, gentleness, patience. God, that you might get the glory as people are reconciled to you and as we're reconciled to one another. In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.